This is The Resilient Life, where we believe that every human will struggle in this life. Our challenge is to struggle well. I'm Ryan Mannion. I lost my brother to war, my mom to cancer, and I'm the daughter of a retired Marine. I'm also a wife, mom, author, and president of one of the nation's leading veteran service organizations. Join me and some incredible guests as we explore the value of struggling well through life's inevitable challenges. Welcome to another episode of the Resilient Life Podcast. I'm bringing back a guest, uh, Tom Schumann, who has been with us before. And it's kind of wild, Tom, when I think about it, because you were on with us almost, I think it was like almost a year ago um, that you and I recorded an episode. And uh, here we are now. You have a newly released book, Always Faithful, the story of the war in Afghanistan, the fall of Kabul, and the unshakable bond between a Marine and an interpreter. You co-wrote that with your interpreter, Zach. And um, what a year it's been. Yeah, it's been quite a year, no doubt. Yeah. yeah. Well, welcome back to uh, the podcast. And, you know, I... I wanted to have you back on uh, to talk about where we are a year later um, with with everything that's happened, but also, you know, to talk about this book. And um, I had the opportunity to uh, read this book and and dive into it. And um, it brought back a lot for me. And so, you know, just kind of, just kind of getting right into it. When, when you and I spoke, um, it was in late July. And you shared the story of Zach, of your interpreter, and how you were working with um, to to get his special immigrant visa. Um, we knew that things were unshaky in Afghanistan, but it really, I would say, was probably ten days after you and I recorded that everything went crazy in Afghanistan. And so you were kind of telling the story of Zach, just. Bring us back and and give our listeners just a little bit of backstory on Zach, your relationship with him, and what you were doing up until, you know, we're going to get into how he eventually got out, but the things you were doing up until then to to find the, I would say, the, the, the channels you were using to try and get him out up until that point. Sure. I deployed to Singen, Afghanistan in 2010 as a rifle platoon commander with Kilo Company 3rd Battalion 5th Marines. Zach was my interpreter. That deployment was extremely kinetic. Uh, it was the deadliest battle in our nation's longest war. And I went back a second time uh, as a recon JTAC and as an advisor guy. And so I, between those two deployments, about 17 months in Afghanistan, I've worked with a dozen different interpreters and most of them do their duties as in they translate. Uh, Zach was much more than someone who just translated. Zach was someone who, when the bullets were flying, was still standing uh, shoulder by shoulder with you. Whereas many interpreters, and I don't don't say this negatively, but many of them, when the bullets started flying, you couldn't find them. Uh, You had to come back and they'd be laying down and like, are we... I guess we can go now. Uh, and so, but their job wasn't to be a Marine. Their job was to translate. Uh, whereas, you know, when I would have mass casualties, three or four guys injured, and we needed someone to pick up a rifle, 
Zach picked up a rifle. When the Taliban was about to initiate an ambush, Zach heard that over the radio. He sprinted through a minefield and tackled the guy who was going to initiate the minefield. So Zach quickly became, uh, you know, elevated in his position within the platoon as this is someone who just interprets it like this is one of us. And so he absolutely went above and beyond his duties uh, as an interpreter and really became a brother, part of our family, part of the platoon. Uh, and it, we stayed in touch over Facebook after I left. He went back to his province and worked as an interpreter for uh, the CIA and saw they were they were Green Braves were working out of his province, uh, very near to his village. And so he ended up spending about four years in service to the U.S. military. He did some contracting in the Korangal Valley before he worked uh, with the Marines, where he was hit by an IED there. Uh, then he worked with us, with the Marines, then he worked with the Army and the CIA. So about cumulatively almost four years. Um, once the CIA and the soft guys left his uh, province, he had to go into hiding and he immediately started to be persecuted. And so at a, about 2015, 2016, he reached out to me and said, uh, sir, uh, we, we always stayed in touch over Facebook and he reached out to me and said, I've started my special immigration visa package. Can you help? And I said, of course. So that began a five-year process that uh, turned out to be insurmountable. And the technicalities and the bureaucratic red tape that we could not cut through uh, was astounding, shocking, appalling at times. And so Zach's service to the Marines is documented for about nine months and he has a, a this, this thing that this 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 magical human resource letter you need the magical hr letter and uh and so we had about nine months of his documented service and for the longest time in the special immigration visa one year was all that was required so we we're three months short and we we're trying to kind of work with that and then arbitrarily uh they changed it to two years of service and then recently they've now changed it back to one year of service so as you can see that that two-year number was kind of silly to, uh, because it's back to one year. Um, and the thing about CIA and soft guys is they're maybe hard to find. Uh, and his contracting company that he worked for disappeared overnight. And so we could not, despite testimonies and witnesses and whatever else we could bring to bear, uh, provide an additional HR letter. And without that, nothing could happen. Just insurmountable. Uh, so we would go on and off. Like I, I would find a contact of someone who got an interpreter here and, and I would say, hey, who did you talk to? How did this? And so for a couple of years, we would go back and forth, still trying to once a year, we'd do a little push. But Zach became very defeated by the whole process and frustrated by the whole process and finally said, one day, you know what, sir, uh, I tell all my friends in America that I miss them and I love them, but I just am going to go teach these boys English at school. And uh, and so he had, we, we kind of gave up on the process. And when the president announced in April of 2021 that we would withdraw from Afghanistan uh, by the end of August, I contacted Zach and I said, what does that mean to you? He said, that means I will be dead and my family will be dead. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to get 
to work. And so I started a guerrilla media campaign. I started using my social media account. I posted a one minute, one minute video and I said, here's who Zach is. Can anybody help? And that snowballed. And there was no shortage of good Americans who wanted to help. Uh, I spent hundreds of hours talking to people who would have liked to help. Uh, that's, I mean, we're talking about congressmen, senators, aides, attorneys, um, media. Everyone was really interested in helping. But despite talking to people in very high offices of government, uh, high-ranking military officials, it seemed that we weren't gaining any traction or, or progress. So I, I, I talked to a mutual friend of ours, Jared, and uh, I reached out to Jared in June and I said, hey, what's going to happen to the interpreters? Is someone going to send them a note and say, hey, come to Kabul? Uh, are they going to go get them from their provinces? Or he said, uh, Tom, if they're not here and they're not at the airport, they're not leaving. And I wouldn't wait for someone to say it's time to come. I said, OK. So I told Zach, hey, it's time to get going from Kunar. Uh, so just that was really, you know, that'll get us close to the, the evacuation. That's kind of that his that that in and of itself, leaving his Kunar province to get into Kabul was a whole episode. His days in Kabul were all sketchy and dangerous. Uh, and then obviously the fall was extreme. And and we, we, we got we, we there were many false flags of hope in, in that um, we were on the cover of the New York Times and we're like, okay, well, this is, you're on the cover of the New York Times. Something's going to happen. Something. Yeah, sure. Uh, it means that people care and, but it doesn't mean that you get your visa. Uh, we were sec uh, Senator Durbin during Secretary Blinken's confirmation hearing uh, said, uh, there's a major Schumann. Are you going to help his interpreter? He's on the cover of Chicago Tribune today. So sometimes today, are you going to help him get his interpreter out to this to the Secretary of State, the guy who owns the visa program? And, he, and the Secretary of State says, "I know who Major Schumann is. I've read the article, and I'm going to help you get his interpreter out." Like, okay, well, you've got one of the senior senators, you've got the Secretary of the State. You, this we should be. And you changed. just heard nothing after that statement. I was shocked by the. I mean, I, I knew, obviously, was following the, not all the way back from 2015, but, um, you know, I, I read the Chicago Tribune article. Um, I watched you on Rachel Maddow. Like, I saw the amount of press that you were getting and the, how you were highlighting uh, Zach's story. And I, you, it, it seemed like, well, there's no way that they're not going to hand pluck this guy and his family out of here. Right. And, and to see, and again, bringing it back to our mutual friend, all of these big people in big positions, and it came down to a major in the air force that got it done. And um, that really says something about where we are today. Um, at least it did for me. Um, you know, I will. So when I interviewed you that day, 
I was talking to you about, and I was watching as an observer, like, wow, tell me about this. You're working with Zach. And, and I listened to the story of Zach and the work that he did. And I was inspired by the amount of time that you were putting in um, to help your friend. And the night after we recorded, I had been reminded of an interpreter that had sent me a message on Facebook a year prior. Um, and it wasn't about getting out of Afghanistan. It was um, from a, a um, Afghan uh, interpreter. He had served for eight years with uh, U.S. forces, him and his brother. And he had sent a message to my public Facebook page just saying, you know, my name is Bashamal. Um, I live in Afghanistan. Uh, I somehow came across your page. I want to thank you for what you do to honor your brother. Um, my brother was killed by the Taliban for fighting alongside U.S. forces. And it was just this, you know, long letter, uh, a long um, message about that. And, you know, I'd wrote him back, like, I'm sorry for the loss of your brother. And, you know, just, just in that, in that respect. Well, I went back the next day after I recorded with you and I'm like, I wonder whatever happened to him. And I shot him a note and, and I, I posted it to my social media and I said, Hey, uh, are you still in Afghanistan? And he wrote, yes, ma'am, I'm still in hell. And it was really you that I was like, all right, well, Tom's working to get his guy out. Like, what can I do for, like, I felt compelled to help. And I was kind of in the same position that I think probably many of the well-meaning people um, that were surrounding you were like, you know, I was like, okay, well, what do I do now? He just wrote, no, I'm still in hell. I'm not gonna be like, all right, have a great day. Right. So I'm like, okay, now I just wrote myself in to like part of this process. And he was also in the same, well, he actually was in a different situation than Zach. He had applied for his SIV. He had all his paperwork. He had everything that he needed, um, but it had not been approved. And he had been waiting for two years for the approval um, along with his brother. And um, when I was reading your book, um, you know, I, I, and I loved the way that your book worked where it was like your, your perspective and then Zach's perspective of the same events that were happening the entire, through this entire process. Um, and, you know, I learned through the book that, that Zach had been poisoned uh, a couple of years before leaving. Like, I mean, the Taliban was out to kill him and, and they almost did. And then I was gripped to the end of the story because I knew the ending and I knew that there was a lot of the similar characters to what I went through. And so I'm reading the book and like, I'm like, all right, when's Jared coming in? And I talked to Jared. I'm like, Jared, like when I knew you were writing this book, I said, Jared, you're an integral part of the story. He's like, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I just, I just helped my friend out from, you know, that a certain, that I went through basic training with in the Marine Corps. Like he's such a humble individual. He was just like, no, I, I don't play a large role in this. And I'm like, no, you do. Um, and then I'm seeing like Malad come in and like the same, literally the same process that you went through with Zach to get him through that Abbey gate. Two days later, Jared was doing it again, along with Malad, uh, another Afghan, but the day that my friend went through, he met and went through with him. So Malad got out, Malad's living in Virginia now. Um, but it was wild 
to see you recount that. And it's brought up. So it brought up a lot of emotions for me because everything you were writing where you're like, I hadn't slept for two weeks. I, you know, I was surviving off tobacco and energy drinks. And I'm like, I was right there with them. I think I was, you probably were already sleeping, but when I was still in my, because Zach is already on the plane, but I was like, oh, I was surviving off tobacco and, and energy drinks too. I was doing the same thing you were doing. So it was just, I loved that you put it down in, um, in a book and the book is fantastic. It really is. Um, you guys did a beautiful job writing it. It was great, but let's talk about, um, let's talk about that, those last few days and, and getting, um, and getting Zach out of there and, and what that took and the, and the role that Jared played essentially in that. Yeah. Jared was integral and central. He is also, like you said, very humble. Uh, we, we were operating under the assumption that we had until the end of August. And so that's kind of, that was our planning horizon. And so things were urgent, but we, we thought we had a, two more weeks. Um, and so we're doing things like Zach is applying for his passport and just getting his passport itself. You know, when he applied for his passport, they said it's going to take six months. Uh, but if you can bring $500, it could be here in 24 hours. And so we get the passports, we're getting his IDs. We're trying to do everything through official channels. We're trying to do everything through the proper protocols to the best of our ability to work through the system, because we still have, faith that the system is, is going to deliver what it's promised. And we, we, we still believe that there is somehow people who are SIV eligible or applicants are, they're going to be evacuated is, is what we're, we're working under that assumption. Um, but it, everything changed the day Kabul fell. And so Zach is at the post office sending me a message like they don't have my wife's passport again we've got everybody's but we don't have my wife's i don't know and then like the next message is the taliban is here and the post office is closed and now the streets are empty and no one knows what and and so that immediately changed our calculus is is the 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 sense of the sense of urgency went from very urgent to got to get out right now and uh and so i we call it an escalation of force in, in the in the military and so i i was i started to escalate what uh i posted and so i consulted with zach and said hey uh we got to put a face to the story stories need a face and i think if we can put a face to the story we'll bring some more attention and it, it might garner some kind of hail mary this is all hail marys at this point and also it's all bad options at this point. There's, it's, it's not like, like you said, where somebody, somebody's got to come just pluck this guy out. It's like, no, that's not happening. And, and so it's bad option one, bad option two, worse option three. And so we went with bad option one, which was reveal who Zach was and uh, try to increase the amount of attention that the story was getting in hopes that somehow, some way that might propel his case to the front of the line. And, uh, and, and once, and it worked as I anticipated when I put Zach's face to the story, it went bonkers, you know, like, uh, I think that first post got like 17,000 likes, you know? And so, and it was, it was 
my first post my first post was just a, a couple of words on a black screen it said uh, Zach's at the advocate can anybody help and then I got that and then in the next post and so Zach had three attempts to escape I kind of chronicled each of those attempts and their their failures and uh through that it the, the story gained significant momentum uh significant criticism from everybody saying oh not everybody but plenty of people saying great job now you killed them oh now you just and all these people giving me so much negative energy and vibes and saying that i've now condemned my interpreter to death because i was doing this for social media clout and i'm like no one in the world wants this guy to live more than me like uh and i understand and and people like opsec opsec it's like i know what freaking opsec is i'm a marine officer like i know what opsec is like there there is there is a risk assessment that we've determined and we've we've determined that we are going to go public and uh so that was really tough and I just I also just didn't have a lot of emotional resiliency at that time so like I still a little bit obviously butthurt about it uh because I just didn't have like if, that, if someone did that now it would not but I was very emotionally vulnerable uh when I was coming under fire from a, a bunch of folks um but through all that uh the real story is is what Zach is doing uh what people like Jared are doing what the Marines of 1A and 2-1 were doing and so uh, the, the first, uh, the first, I got connected to, uh, a, a, a Marine captain named Sam. He was a company commander doing security. And I said, Hey, uh, Sam, can you help my interpreter? He said, yep. Send him to this gate on this date and time. That goes to that, to the gate at that date and time. And that's the, the day the airport got overran. So everybody's familiar with those images of people running out of the airfield, jumping on planes. So the moment that Zach got to the airport. It's the same moment that the airport got breached. And so Sam obviously became, he was very busy, but then he had to go tend to a breached airport and the gate got locked. That day, they, his family was stuck outside the gate for several hours. Uh, the Taliban machine gunned the crowd right next to his children. Kids got, saw someone killed by a machine gun. Uh, they walked home that day and all I could do was apologize to Zach and I felt like a failure and um, he, his wife, I think was not super into what just happened and said, maybe we just need to go back. And, uh, and he said, like, just send somebody to come get me. I can't do that again. And uh, okay. Reset. And all this is just like planning an operation. Uh, from the command operating center, you're just planning this operation. But the the frustrating thing is, you know, I, I've always because I'm still, you know, only a major. You know, all my operational experience is the tactical level where I can go to the problem. You know, we call it the point of friction, and you can go to the point of friction. And you can influence the point of friction. Very challenging to try to where you can't actually uh, put yourself there. And 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 so the second time, again. Sam says, I'm at this gate, send them, same thing, crowds start to surge, they close the gate, this is, and, and I post a picture, Zach is feet away from a Marine, uh, he's, he's recording a video 
talking to me and saying, you know, they, I'm, I could see the Marines. I'm calling them. They won't let me in. They won't let anybody in. What do you, what should I do? Just tell me, sir, what should I do? And as he's saying that there's, you hear machine gun fire over the head and he's holding his baby and she's screaming and crying. I'm like, Oh God. Uh, and so when they start firing everywhere again, this is Mlad is there. He jumps in the car with Mlad. They go back to the apartment. And now he's like, I'm not going back to the airport. Yeah. Uh, send the send the Navy SEALs to get me, you know, <laughs> like uh, and and I had like a little team that was kind of helping me through all this. And everybody is very risk averse in that they're like, just wait. We just wait, like, like, let's just wait. And then maybe we can get the seals to get them and let's wait. And then maybe, and I'm just thinking like time is not on our side. And uh, I do not think the situation is going to get better with time. I am, all this is, all these are assumptions, but I'm, I'm thinking it's going to get worse. And, uh, and so operation number three, we had three courses of action. We had a secret CIA gate with a very complex link-up plan. We had a gate where uh, I think she's an army major. She said, hey, I'm getting people out of this gate today. I know it works. There's a challenge and password. Send them to this gate. They'll get out. And then there's the kind of the routine one that we've been going with is like, hey, I know where the Marines are going to be on this date. and We could just try to do that. Uh, I went with option two. Although option one probably had the highest degree of success if executed successfully, but because there's some complexity, we went with option two. Convinced Zach to go out there a third time. Uh, he can't get to the gate that I'm trying to send him to because there's a tailband checkpoint between the Abbey gate and the gate that I'm trying to get him to go to. And he's basically says, I don't know what to do. I can't, I can't do anything. I can't get there. You have to do something. Send someone to get me. And I send Jared a message on Signal, and I said, "Hey, uh, I need you to go get my body." He's like, "I'm in. I'm in the COC. I'm not. I'm not doing stuff outside the gate. Like, I'm in the watch." I'm like, "Dude, I need you to go get my friend." He's like, "Okay, I'll do it." And uh, so I sent him a picture of what Zach was wearing uh, that day with his family and. Jared grabbed two other PJs and they ran out and they jumped on top of the wall. And um, we were in a group chat with Zach, Jared, me and on WhatsApp and, and Jared saying, Zach, put, put your son with the blue shirt on your shoulders, put your son with, with the blue shirt on his, on, on his shoulders and then no messages for about two hours. Uh, and that was very suspenseful. Um, but next thing I know, Jared sends me a picture. He's inside. The kids got chocolate. And uh, yeah, I mean, what a hero. Jared and his team were uh, breaking the, the protocols to jump outside the gate, to pull them in. And, uh, what, a, what, a, what a brave woman uh, Dee Zach's wife is. What a courageous uh, father and husband Zach is for continuing to do, literally risk his life to provide his family a better opportunity. And uh, it was harrowing. It was gut wrenching. And, uh, but at the end of the day, uh, thanks to some great Americans and some really brave Afghans, uh, Zach was safely evacuated. Yeah. I, as I was reading your book, um, 
you had talked about, I think it might've been the second, the second time they had gone out there and Zach had sent you video of one of his kids crying and there was, so Bashamal went, uh, he went twice um, to the airport. The first day that I sent him there um, again to, you know, link up with Jared. I'm like, all right, I know this works because Tom just got his buddy out via, via Jared. Um, this time we had a sign. So Jared was like, I need a sign, you know? Um, so we, we had a sign. Um, but the first time they went, they turned around. And I think again, you know, they had a three-year-old son. Um, uh, Bashamal's wife was like, you know, this is sketchy at, of course it was. And so they came back and he texted me, he's like, we came back and I'm like, why'd you come back? You know? And so the next night it was like, all right, we're going to get Malad involved. And it's so funny because I look back now, I have no idea how Malad got into the signal chat with me, but here it was me, Malad, Jared, and my friend, Pat Ford, who's a Marine. And I, and I think Pat may have reached out to you. I don't even know, but next thing you know, it's the four of us. And it's like, all right, Malad and Bashamal, you're going to meet at 2 a.m. And at this point, Malad's like, I'm getting out too. You know, he's like, I'm ready. Um, and so it was like, you're going to meet at 2 a.m. And you're going to head to the Abbey Gate. And so they did. And there was everything you detailed in your book when you were like, he was right there by the Marines. He was showing me, he was screaming. I was doing the same things. I was literally thinking, okay, Bashamal was standing against the gate. He was literally against the gate and he's sending me pictures and he's like, is this Jared? And I'm like, no, it's just a bunch of Marines standing there. Every guy in a uniform, he's like, is this Jared? And I'm like, no, but uh, I'm like, those are Marines. So I start sending him screenshots of my brother because I'm like, well, the maybe 50%, 40% of Marines, if they're officers, they're going to know the name Travis Mannion. You know, I'm thinking it's a recognizable name in the Marine Corps. And this random Afghan has pictures of him. I'm like, show the Marines this picture and say, I'm uh, Travis Mannion's sister. You know, I mean, I was grasping at straws, anything that would work. So he's trying to flash the pictures. He's like, they're just telling me to shut up. You know, they don't, they, and, and I got it. But he sent me, and they were there for probably about nine or 10 hours that day. And he's standing with Malad and, and they're holding the sign up. And the crowd was enormous at this time. And he sent me a picture of Atal. I don't know, you know, it was the middle of the night. And he sends me this picture of Atal and three-year-old, his three-year-old son, and he's sweating profusely. He's crying. And he said, Atal is overheating. I don't know how much longer we can do this. And Jared was like dead on communications. He was not responding to any communications. And I'm sitting there like, I'm playing God to these people. Like what? And, and he's like, what should we do? Should we stay or should we go? And I'm like, I don't, I don't know how am, I'm lying in my daughter's bunk bed because I had to like, it was the only room that was, you know, that I, and, and my husband's on the other side and he's popping his head in from the bedroom. And he's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I don't know. I said, I, I, I honestly have no idea. And thank God for my friend, Pat, because he was like talking me off a ledge. Then Pat's not answering his phone for a while. So Bashamal's just texting me. 
I'm blowing up Pat. Pat answers phone. He's like, sorry, I fell asleep. I'm like, you can't effing fall asleep. Like, do you understand? I'm like, you can't fall asleep. I'm like, what should we tell them to do? He's like, just hang tight. Jared will be in touch. Jared. And I'm, he's like, just tell them to hang tight. And when I sent that text and I said, just hang tight. It, I had this like feeling in my gut and I was just like, oh my God, am I making like the wrong decision here? And I'm telling these people and listen, you're a Marine. Like, like you said, like you're used to running operations. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a 40 year old woman lying in my kid's bunk bed, telling these Afghans, like, and it felt so unnatural to me. And I just, I didn't know what to do. And then the next thing, you know, it, I guess it was probably an hour later. I just got the text from Jared and it was like, I have them. And I was like, holy shit. Like, I could not believe it. I was like, oh my, it was wild. And, and I will say that what happened, and I have to imagine you have a huge social media following. Like I became inundated with Afghans reaching out. Can you help me? Sending me every sort of document. Uh, Here's all my paperwork. I mean, legitimate And I'm sure there were probably some bad actors in the mix, but like legitimate, this is where, you know, this is what I did. This is who I served with. This is all my paperwork. And Jared for until the explosion at Abbey Gate, which I think was three or four days before, after Bashamal got out, he was like caravanning like groups through that gate. And when I talked with him after, he said he got to the point where nobody was listening. Nobody at the higher level was listening. Nobody was, it, it seemed like nobody was understanding what we were leaving behind and understanding that commitment we had made. And he said, I remember just being there and being like, I, I'll give it all up today, everything I'm doing, because I'm going to do the right thing. And I had so much respect for him when he shared that with me, because it was hard to think about in that moment how much he was putting in the, on the line um, for these people. Yeah, put it, putting your rank on the table is, I mean, it's one, of the, it's one of the most serious and grave consequences of things that you can do, uh, you know, as an officer. But if, if you aren't willing to put it on the table, and it's got to be, something significant you know it, it can't be you can't uh what is it you can't swing at the first pitch every time you got to pick and choose your battles right there, it, it is a rare moment in your career where you're going to be in a situation where you have to say if i don't put my rank on the table for this i just don't deserve to have the rank and you you always do it for people and, and when and when you know that within that there's honor and there's integrity within that process. And that's when you've got to put that rank on the table. And so of course, Jared is just a man of the highest character and, and just speaks volumes about who, who he is uh, because no one wants to piss off senior officers. I mean, it's, it's, you, you don't want to do that. And Jared didn't want, to, but you have to be a man of principle and, um, and, and fight for what you believe in. And that's a little Zimbeck uh, reference as I'm sure you're aware. And then, uh, you know, the, the, it's, it's funny, like the haze that you're talking about, like, I don't even know how I ended up in a single group with these people. Like, I, yeah, I was in 
it's like, how did I get connected? It's not, I'm not even really sure. I don't really know who I'm talking. Uh, that all is so hazy. Um, and, and then the, you know, to your statement, well, well, Tom did this. So it's, this is what's, and so yes, it like Tom's a success, Like Tom is not a success. Tom, it, there's no success in Tom's story. And, and Tom for five years failed for two times failed, the system never worked. And, and so the, the, but the Tom, now I, I don't want to interrupt you, but like, I, I don't believe the statement Tom failed, like the system failed, Zach, like the system failed. I mean, I, I fully believe that. Fair enough. Clarification. Uh, noted. I, I just, when everybody, as you reference starts to inundate you and say hey you did this you you're the success in this story it's like i did like what i did i'm not sure can be replicated uh because it rested on a few individuals heroism and courage Mm -hmm. and to say that i can replicate that team's heroism and courage to continue like i can't guarantee or promise any of that um and it was so tough because I received thousands of messages to this day, weekly, almost daily, to continue to receive these messages. And clearly it's an issue that I'm empathetic towards. Clearly it's an issue that I have a heart for. Uh, and every time you receive one of these messages, it's like, don't do it for me, do it for my children, the Taliban are going to, and it's like, and you become emotionally invested all over again. And then you're in this kind of position where, well, do I open myself up to each of these messages and become emotionally and mentally involved? Or do I become callous to people's suffering and just ignore the message? And it's a, it was a, it was, tough it was tough it was bad it was ugly and it shouldn't the situation should have never been like that in the first place but like uh it 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 took great americans like you and and jared to kind of work around the system and you know it should never come to that i um i still get messages almost daily too and um most of them come via social media so I don't want to say it's easier for me to ignore from that perspective, but I got an email yesterday and, you know, I, I got to click on the email and it was a young man who sent me an email. His dad was a, um, a general with the Afghan army. And, um, he said that, his father had emailed me last year to help him. And I never responded to the email. And his father has since been killed by the Taliban. Sent me pictures of his father um, with articles attached because his father was a high-ranking army general. And he said, uh, you, you ignored my father. Please don't ignore my family now. And that one like hit me pretty hard. And, you know... I'm, I feel like I don't know. I haven't responded. I don't know if I'll respond because again, I don't 
I don't know where to, I don't know where to turn for help. I, I know there's a lot of these fringe groups that are saying they're still on the ground in Afghanistan, saving people. I don't know the reality of that. Um, I don't want to refer them. Oh, you know, click on this, you know, hit up pineapple express. I, you know, I don't, I don't know what's happening there, but in the same token, I don't have Jared on the ground. Like the, the way that, that Bashama got out the way that Zach got out. Like, like you said, it was with a couple of people that, you know, risked their livelihood uh, to help. And so that I would say is the toughest thing for me um, to, to read things like that and, and think like that I'm, I'm callous and ignoring it, but I also don't know how to respond to it. And, you know, I try to focus on my friends that are here that live a mile down the street from me that uh, I just, you know, that work at the Travis Mannion Foundation that I see all the time. Um, but I struggle with that a lot, like a lot. Yeah, it's tough. There's not a right answer. And uh, it's just, it's a tragedy if there's what it is. What I'd love to know is, you know, you wrote this book and, and the, and the book, like I said, is fantastic. Um, it's a fantastic account of the process you went through with Zach, but also the time you served with him as well. Um, it's beautifully written. And I think if you, if you have any interest in the war in Afghanistan and the fall of Afghanistan, um, you, you're going to want to read it. But what are you hoping that people learn from it and take away from this book? Sure. Uh, I, I think part of the answer is in the, in the fact that it's co-authored. Is, 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 uh, and, I'll, and I'll get to that because that's the, I would say the, the primary part. But I, I also, I wanted to talk a little bit about 3-5's legacy. Uh, those Marines, those 25 Marines, and they have a story that's worth being told their men worth remembering. And this was an opportunity to do that. I wanted to talk a little bit about some of my heroes who have helped me get to where I am today. And, and that's my mom. So just to, to be able to tell, you know, I'm only anything that I am today because of the people who made me and supported me. And so to be able to talk a little bit about my mom is, is she's a hero and she heard a story deserves to be told. And so, and then it, it was, when when we talked with Harper Collins about this book, it was all I, I was I was I never set out to write a book. Uh, it wasn't what was I, I I just had my third kid in three years. I was studying at the War College, getting a graduate degree there, um, running Patrol Base Abate. It wasn't like oh you know what would also be great to do is is to write a book. Uh, but the opportunity for Zach to be able to tell his story and more importantly, to be able to tell the story of the, the impact of the war in Afghanistan. And so I had a professor at Georgetown. I took a class called Asian American Literature. And, and she, we always read many of the texts from the, the, the people that were impacted the most from whatever area and in their own voice. And so uh, I, I, I would never have written a book about Afghanistan, just me, like here's Tom Schumann who spent 17 months there and here's what Afghanistan is all about it's like well how about 
uh, I have a brother who's from Afghanistan and grew up in Afghanistan, spent 30 years in Afghanistan. Maybe he can talk a little bit about what that war means to him and what the impacts on that culture were and, and what it was like growing up in that country. And so that to me is what uh, made the book really worth writing is, is to give an opportunity for everyone to learn a little bit about this country that has been part of our lexicon. But that, you know, my, my mids at the Naval Academy don't, they don't remember a world before Afghanistan. Everything is post 9-11 for them. And, and so like their entire childhood was the global war on terror and so uh let's bring uh, a person who has that that's been his entire life and and bring that into to the story and and so yeah i i think really i wanted uh i was just excited about zach having opportunity to tell his story tell the story of the afghan people about their bravery about their sacrifice zach for several years could not work outside of his village for fear of persecution. Zach, up until shortly before he was evacuated, was still receiving night letters, uh, threats, death threats from the Taliban. And, and so the, the, the idea is, is what, what does it mean for someone who risked their lives for four years in support of the United States and then lived under persecution for the next decade uh, because of their service. He couldn't leave his village for fear of death. He had to hide it in his father's house. And, and uh, you know, the, the idea that his visa is still denied, uh, the fact that his children today bring up his grandmother and, 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 his, and their uncles and their cousins. Like, and, and so, you know, it, this is, in, in some respects, it's, it's a made we're, we're it's an, a success in that they're safe um but it's important to, to recognize that that the system did not succeed the war did not succeed and that really the, the amount of tragedy that is still ongoing is is worth having a conversation about you know after everything happened General Dumford serves on uh, our board of directors. And we asked if he would do a um, webinar uh, to our, our members um, to talk about Afghanistan because we were really getting a lot of feedback that our, our, our veteran members at the foundation um, were having a hard time. And I think we collectively knew that our, our, service members in general were having a hard time with what happened in Afghanistan. And I said, listen, you don't have to talk about your thoughts on it, but I think just to bring some reassurance. And he said, I'm happy to talk and I'm happy to talk about my thoughts and, and be very candid. And he got on with a few thousand individuals and he shared that he was part of a commission under the Trump administration um, well, when he was when he was um, chairman of the Joint Chiefs uh, for the Trump administration, his recommendation was that we, for the foreseeable future, kept um, a certain amount of troops in Afghanistan. When the Biden administration took over, uh, he was part of a commission 
to advise the incoming administration on a direction with Afghanistan. Um, he gave the same, he said, after a lot of thoughtful discussion and, um, uh, you know, really looking back again thoroughly on everything, he came to the same conclusion he had that he advised Trump on, and that was that um, we needed to keep a certain amount of troops in Afghanistan. And he said uh, his recommendation was not taken. Um, you just, for me, in, in, in my lifetime, I've never seen something go so colossally wrong. And then to hear that the most senior military officer gave guidance on which direction he thought would be the best for the safety of our country, for the safety and preservation of, of the work that had been done in Afghanistan and to see that it had been ignored. Um, it was, uh, it was pretty amazing. Um, amazing is a one word. Um, you know, I, as, um, active duty, I can't comment on the, you know, whatever strategic decisions were made. I, I can say that I hope lessons were learned. Yeah. You know, if, 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 if we don't look at this critically and say, what could have we done better? Oh, that, that is a real, um, that's a real tragedy. We, we have to be able to capture some of the lessons learned and make sure that we don't repeat these kind of mistakes. Uh, and, and so that's all our collective duty. Uh, I think we should, you know, examine it. What do we ask the 18 year old PFC and Lance Corporal to, to uphold and do and make sure that if we're asking them to do that, that they're fully supported in every way that they can be. And, 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 there's so much uh, kind of horror that surrounds that evacuation at the airport, but there's one, you know, light, and that is those Marines who held the line to the very end. And, and so they, they kept our nation's promises uh, up into the very final moment that they could. And so that, that the tremendous bravery of the men and women that held the line and, and tried to do their absolute best to help with desperate people, I think is, is something that um, we should really recognize and celebrate and be thankful that these men, young men and women still do uh, incredible stuff like that. And then when you talk about, you know, veterans struggling, it's, it's really, there's this, this principle of moral injury and you're told that something matters and that winning matters and you're, and you're told that honor matters and you're told that accountability matters. And these are values and principles that are drilled into you from officer candidate school and boot camp. And I, I think back to when I was in singing on my first deployment, I was crossing the Hellman river and I got sucked under and I was drowning quite literally drowning. And I had a decision to make, was I going to ditch my gear so that I could live or was I going to keep my gear on and have all my gear accounted for, but be dead. And quite literally, I thought it will be better to be dead with my gear accounted for. And because 
a Marine without his rifle, like it's, you know, it's just, uh, and, and, and I was blacking out and I was said my little prayer. Uh, I thought about my mom and I thought this is a good, bad way to end it. And this little thing inside me said, you got to live, you got to live. I pulled my cord, I ripped my gear off. I spent the next 72 hours camped out on a riverbed doing search and recovery for my rifle and my, my flak jacket. We recovered it. Otherwise I <laughs> wouldn't have a, my current job. I think I would probably, my career probably would have ended uh, much earlier. Uh, and so, but I, I just think that I thought losing that one rifle was maybe worse than losing my life. And uh, because the amount of accountability and responsibility that is, I've been told is important and i bought into that and i believe it and i believe that we fight the win and i and and then all that gets shattered in a moment like that and you you do you're angry you said well you i was told that this this mattered and 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 and, uh and so i was like many veterans i think angry disillusioned um and really hurt uh and so yeah i i i think you know, you're a great leader in that you, you run uh, the foundation and you recognize that, uh, that, 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 that was absolutely the right call to, to do that because many of us were, were searching for answers and feeling lost. And, um, every time I, I can't, like, I still have like not gone back and looked at my, all my signal and WhatsApp messages. Like I, it's like still too raw for me to even kind of go back there. And Zach and I did our first interview together, like, a week ago and as we retold this and i could hear it in his voice and it's it's it is still uh, emotionally draining uh evolution and and i wasn't you know and the last time i was there was march 2013 and it still feels so connected to all of that and so yeah it's it, it's a tough situation all around and maybe uh i think the general you know he obviously has a pretty fair assessment that i had to guess what do you think that the average American is thinking as we enter one year? Do you think it's just lost, you know, as uh, one year out from that tragic time? I mean, do you think it's even in the, in the collective forefront of anybody's mind other than the people that were directly involved with it? Uh, we'll, we'll find out is, is one, we'll see how it's covered uh, in, in the media. Um, you know, I, I wonder, was there a commission into the evacuation? What were those results? Uh, who, what, what, again, what lessons were learned? Who was, was anybody accountable? Were there any consequences for that kind of thing? Or was it a success? I, like, let, and, and so I, I think, uh, hopefully the nation is interested in finding out what happened how did that happen? Uh, that, that would be interesting to, to get those details. Um, uh, you know, I, I can't, I, I can't speak to the pulse of the average American citizen and engage their interest into foreign affairs. Uh, it's, you know, every, for the last five years on 9-11, I've gone to New York City, you know, so like, I'm a person who's very invested in all of that. Uh, so, um, 
but I don't know what, what, you know, I, I always come back to this idea of, of uh, and I, and I don't, and, and many people view this as like an indictment and I'm not one of them that uh, America's not at war. The Marines are at war. America's at the mall. And, and, and it, in a sense, to me, that is a celebratory statement, although it's used as an indictment. And, and so I don't want America to be at the war. Like I am serving so that my sisters and that my mom could go to the mall. Like, and so like, it, it's so long as like they're at the mall and they're not at the front line or they're not, they didn't have to go start to work at the rubber factory to you know, help get Humvee tires. Like, I think that's good, you know? And so I don't know what America will prioritize or won't, uh, but uh, that's kind of my take. Well, as we, as we wrap this up, the other thing I, you know, and you touched on it briefly, but the other thing that I thought was so poignant about your book was how you brought it back to the men that you served with that gave their lives in service or after service as a result of their injuries. And you shared their stories and, you know, in the very beginning, um, the story you shared of a funeral that you were at, um, from a triple amputee that had died of, um, an opioid overdose. Um, and I want to thank you, you know, in these challenging times that we are going through, uh, in this country, um, the idea that you continue to share and recall stories of the fallen, um, you know, and you didn't have to do that in this book. You could have very easily just shared your story and shared Zach's perspective, and it would have been a compelling book. Um, but the way that you brought the stories of these fallen individuals, including Robert Kelly, who, um, you know, was talked about in several different times during the book. Um, I, I want to thank you for that. And thank you for, bringing uh, our fallen service members into the forefront and um, into the minds of, of everybody who reads this story. Yeah, there's, I just went to the fifth Marines Memorial garden um, last week. And there's a, there's a JFK quote there. It says the nation reveals itself, not only by the men it produces, but also by the men it honors and the men it remembers. And so uh, I, it is part of my duty uh, and responsibility to remember men like Robert Kelly and, and Sergeant Antoni and Sergeant Metabate and Will Donnelly and Kevin Nguyen and Arna Benagua. These, these are names that are worth knowing. Their stories are worth remembering, uh, just like Travis's. And so uh, it is a duty, obligation, responsibility that I'll carry with me for the remainder of my life. Tom, thank you so much for joining us again. Everybody, we will, we will post a, a link to where you can buy um, Always Faithful. Uh, like I said, it's a great book um, and I think you'll all enjoy it. And uh, it's just, it's kind of wild. You know, a year ago I was on with you and you were like, we're doing everything we can. Uh, and, and I remember at one point you said, it doesn't look good, but we're trying everything we can. And um, the bright spot of this interview today is that Zach is here in America with his beautiful family. They're doing well. And, um, and he's got a great book that's just been released by uh, HarperCollins. So um, fantastic stuff. As always, thank you for being on The Resilient Life. I always appreciate your perspective. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for your support. 
please make sure to like, subscribe, and share with your friends. <laughs>